Hello and welcome to this week's podcast version of Scripps 5 Must Know Things. This time for the Business Week ended 12th March 2021. I'm Ian Haydock. On the menu this time, Roche talks about deal making in a pandemic, coronavirus vaccine disinformation, Amgen's 5 Prime acquisition, a Novartis clinical trial failure, and new data for a Merck antiviral for the coronavirus. Roche holding Genentech Global Oncology Partnering Head Don O'Sullivan is eager to get back to the days of discussing deals in person over a glass of wine, but noted in an interview that the COVID-19 pandemic did not slow his business development group's progress in accessing external innovation. There are so many efficiencies that we've learned from negotiating and doing deals during the pandemic, O'Sullivan said. We always miss the human interactions, but there's so many learnings we can take that can be applied to deal-making going forward that can make the whole process more efficient. Roche's deal for co-development and commercialisation of blueprint medicines rearranged during transfection inhibitor pralcetinib in July, which was valued at $775 million up front, began with a conversation between O'Sullivan and Blueprint's Chief Operating Officer Kate Haviland, a former colleague, at a wine bar before the world went into lockdown. The drug, branded Gavareto in the US, was approved in September for adults with metastatic, RET, fusion-positive, non-small cell lung cancer. However, the agreement announced in December for Genentech to license Relay Therapeutics' early-stage SHP2 inhibitor RLY1971 for $75 million up front was negotiated via virtual meetings. Scripps' Mandy Daxon spoke with O'Sullivan alongside Shiva Malik, Executive Director of Discovery Oncology within Genentech Research and Early Development, about Roche Genentech's priorities in oncology partnering deals. Part of my role is working really closely with the partnering group, Malik said. External innovation is a key part of how we're bringing transformative medicines to patients. O'Sullivan noted that partnering is really a cornerstone of our R&D strategy in oncology alongside our broad internal pipeline. In fact, 40% of our sales are actually from in-licensed or partnered programs. If you go a level down into our pipeline across the board, 50% of our pipeline is either partnered or comes from licensing. State-backed propaganda campaigns, particularly from Russia, China and Iran, have sought to inject false or misleading narratives into the information ecosystem with the aim of undermining public confidence in Western-developed vaccines against COVID-19, according to new reports. But the best option for the biopharma industry is to stick to what it's been doing, Biotechnology Innovation Organisation Chairman Jeremy Levin said. The only thing that biotechnology companies can do is adhere to the principles of transparency and publication and peer review, coupled with a commitment to science and excellence, he said in an interview with Scripps Alaric Diarment. You've seen it in Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca. There's complete transparency. He highlighted as an example the agreement that Pfizer made with Israel for the company to sell the vaccine to authorities there and in return get full data about how the vaccine is working in the general population, which the two will then publish together. Brett Schaefer, Media and Digital Disinformation Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, an initiative of the German Marshall Fund of the US, suggested that having drug makers more actively lead the charge against disinformation could backfire. If people are sceptical of vaccines because they think Big Pharma, the government or some combination thereof has nefarious intentions, then it's clearly problematic to have those people pushing back against false information, Schaefer told Scripp. 
Because disinformation has been such a constant throughout the coronavirus pandemic, there actually have been several efforts to get the medical community, the tech platforms, disinformation researchers and government officials to coordinate their efforts, he added. So in some ways, we are better prepared for this challenge now because we've collectively had a year to prepare for the coming storm. Amgen announced on 4th March that it will pay $1.9 billion to acquire five prime therapeutics in a deal that some analysts see as a potential precursor to larger business development by the company. Amgen's purchase was motivated by the strength of five primes phase three ready first in class FGFR2B targeting antibody Bemarituzumab in the treatment of her negative gastric cancer. Joe Haas writes that the acquisition gives Amgen a much-needed addition to its late-stage R&D pipeline, and the company said it sees potential for bemarituzumab to offer growth opportunities beyond gastric cancer in breast, lung and ovarian cancers. Amgen will pay $38 per share, a nearly 79% premium over 5 Prime's $21.26 share price at the close of trading on 3rd March, in a tender offer that it hopes will close during the second quarter. The acquisition brings a potentially lucrative near-market cancer therapy to Amgen at a time when the big biotech needs additional new growth drivers. Its commercial portfolio faces mid-decade patent expirations and its late-stage pipeline offers little beyond KRAS G12C inhibitor Sotorasib, which is under US FDA approval review in second-line or later NSCLC, and the TSLP inhibitor tezepelumab, US and EU regulatory filings for which in severe asthma are expected during the first half of 2021. Amgen Chief Financial Officer Peter Griffith told the 4th March Investor Call that the deal advances our strategic imperative to grow our business internationally, and in Asia-Pacific in particular, where gastric cancer is highly prevalent and where we previously stated we expect to generate roughly 25% of our revenue growth over the next 10 years. Having failed to add a cardiovascular indication for canakinumab, Novartis' hopes of progressing the anti-inflammatory agent in oncology have been hit by another failure, this time in a late-stage trial for non-small cell lung cancer. Kevin Grogan writes that the Swiss major has revealed that canakinumab in combination with the chemotherapy agent docetaxel did not meet the primary endpoint in the phase 3 canopy 2 study of overall survival in patients with advanced or metastatic NSCLC. The study of the interleukin-1 beta inhibitor was conducted in 237 patients whose disease progressed while on or after previous platinum-based chemotherapy and PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitor immunotherapy. John Tsai, head of global drug development and chief medical officer at Novartis, said that while the results from the Canopy 2 trial are not what we hoped for, they do provide valuable insights into interleukin-1 beta inhibition and that ongoing phase 3 combination studies in NSCLC will continue evaluating canakinumab in earlier treatment settings. Canopy 2 is expected to report final results before the end of the year and other studies in the adjuvant and neoadjuvant settings are underway. Canakinumab was first approved in the US back in 2009 as Ilaris, and it's received a host of approvals for several rare diseases since then. Merck Co. has released top-line data from a trial of its oral COVID-19 antiviral therapy, Molnupiravir, which it hopes could become a COVID pill to allow at-home treatment and help people recover faster from the infection. 
Data from only a secondary endpoint result have been released, but showed that after five days of treatment, none of the 47 patients receiving the drug still had traces of infectious virus, whereas 24% receiving placebo still tested positive. Andrew McConaughey reports that the capsule therapy is taken every 12 hours for five days, giving it a similar user-friendly profile to Roche's Tamiflu for influenza. The preliminary data for molnupiravir sustain hope that a therapy can be developed to be administered at home and help patients recover faster. The multicenter US Phase 2A study enrolled 202 non-hospitalised adults who had signs or symptoms of COVID-19 within seven days and confirmed active SARS-CoV-2 infection, and its primary efficacy objective is reduction in time to viral negativity as measured by reverse transcriptase PCR analysis of nasopharyngeal swabs. So far, Merck and its partner Ridgeback Biotherapeutics have reported findings on only one secondary objective, a reduction in days to a negative test for SARS-CoV-2 from nasopharyngeal swabs as determined by another test, isolation in vero cell line culture. This alternative diagnostic assay for the virus was used alongside the standard PCR test because it could potentially yield a more accurate result. However, it's still important that the therapy also records similarly clear results using the PCR test, as this will be the one used in real-world settings. The primary completion date for the trial is May 2021, but the partners believe interim efficacy data could arrive earlier, centering on the PCR tests. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. All these articles in full are linked in the article accompanying this podcast on our site, where you will find much, much more insightful content from our global team. Also, a reminder that these and all our podcasts are now available on Spotify under the Informer Pharma Intelligence channel. Bye for now.